What are men to rocks and mountains? Jane Austen. Welcome to Warfare Advancement and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I am your host. I'd like to thank everyone who's continued to listen uh, to the show. Um, I've, uh, you know, I've enjoyed making it, and I'm going to, of course, continue making it for as long as I feel that I can. Um, and I hope everyone continues to enjoy. I also hope, if you're listening, that you've had a better weekend than myself. Um, I know this usually posts Monday morning, or Monday very early morning, or possibly even Sunday night, depending on your location. But uh, I've had a little bit of a rough weekend. My back is uh, killing me. I've gone to the gym for the first time in a little while. And um, I felt fine yesterday when I got home, but this morning I woke up and I think I've done something to my back. So... Uh, if I sound funny or if you hear me moving around a lot, I do apologize. And if this episode's a little bit shorter than last week's, which is going to be regardless, um, but it may be cut a little short if I'm just um, not feeling too, too well. But I think I'm going to go ahead and try to get as much of this done as I can because, you know, we made really good coverage last week. And um, as we continue for Asia, uh, it won't take as long, kind of, as Africa did to kind of get through regions, which I know is, you know, odd because Asia is massive compared to the other continents. But at least in terms of, you know, numbers of people and different types of people, it's a little bit harder to kind of focus on them. Um, because, again, we went over this last time. The human population is only about a million, and most of the people are living in Africa. Uh, in Asia and in Europe and the Americas and as well as Austra, Australasia, um, you're dealing with very small groups, uh, comparatively at least. Um, isolated, smaller groups that are, of course, as time goes by, going to expand. Um, but there's there's not quite as much to cover just yet, although we're getting there. Slowly but surely, we're making progress. So, uh, that being said, I do need to go ahead and kind of provide a little bit of feedback. Um, and I, you know, I know I went over it briefly, but, um, someone did point out that I didn't really, uh, that I forgot to mention or didn't know that the Persian Gulf flooded at 10,000 BC. Um, I did mention that like the modern-day city of Iraq, Basra, uh, was underwater at that time. Um, but I, I wasn't quite clear enough, and I do think the person, um, uh, I think the name was John, that they had on the feedback, uh, did point out that, yes, uh, there is a theory, it's very popular, um, although I have read a little bit more recent stuff, that it, 10,000 BC, it may have been a couple of hundred years before this, or maybe even a hundred or so years after this. But yes, uh, that is a potential time where there was major flooding in southern Mesopotamia on the current day Persian Gulf. Um, And in fact, that is one of the, I guess, the potential great flood origins, um, especially for the people living in the area. and that is, the, of course, the Great Flood that is mentioned uh, most famously in the Bible. Um, and 
you know, but that's not the only uh, mythological tradition or religious tradition to mention floods. They they show up in a few different um, faiths, and of course the Sumerians, the Babylonians, the Akkadians, they're all going to kind of share a similar flood story to uh, the Hebrew Bible, which of course came to Christian faith and all that stuff. Um, there are other options, you know, for what this flood was, depending on where you live um, or where people lived, I guess, that came up with the story. Um, but, you know, that's that's for a future episode. But yes, I didn't explicitly say it, and I should have. It, it, is a very, it is a very real possibility that that is happening or has just happened, uh, as the case may be. So, yeah, I, that was a miss on my part, and I do thank John for reaching out. And if anyone else has any constructive criticism or feedback, please, please let me know. Now, to get, I guess, to our next section, or to follow up on another couple of things that I left out in the last episode, I should say. I know I covered southern Anatolia as well as the Mediterranean coast with the discussion of the pre-pottery Neolithic. Um, this is, of course, part of the Fertile Crescent. Um, most of the early settlements you'll see, um, uh, oldest uh, permanent settlements you'll see in the Fertile Crescent are right at the headwaters of the Tigris and Euphrates in the southern part of Anatolia. Uh, there are some more to the east as well, and then there are those in the southern um, uh, Levant, Palestine region where Jericho is. Um, there is, of course, uh, other permanent settlements further to the, I guess, right along the coast of Anatolia, uh, and there are is even some evidence of going all the way to the Aegean. Um, there's a there's a place, and I did not write the name down because I think it's late enough in this period. It's probably going to be in the next pre-pottery stage, which is called pre-pottery uh, pre-pottery Neolithic B, which is going to be covered in the next part of this um, area. Um, but uh, yes, there is evidence from that these people are living. Uh, all the way along the Aegean coast at this point, or at least the southern part of the Aegean coastline in Anatolia. There is also evidence that uh, we are visiting Cyprus uh, semi-regularly. Now, there's not going to be any settlements in this region before agricultural is like fully I, I guess you'd say mastered, even though that's not really the case. But it's it's before there's widespread agriculture. There's no permanent settlementation on, or I'm sorry, permanent settlements on Cyprus. Uh, there are, um, it's currently occupied actually by a bunch of dwarf species because, you know, typically in isolated areas like that, a dwarfism is something that begins to develop. There are dwarf elephants and hippos, um, or at least there were, like, well into kind of the period where now the Holocene. Um, but there has been evidence that there are um, a bunch of, uh, I guess, 
tools that are consistent with this time frame and even a couple of thousand years before that that have been found on the island on the southern part so that means at the very least uh, we were visiting semi-regularly to Cyprus uh, perhaps this was a journey that was made seasonally or perhaps every couple of years as part of a um, I guess a, an attempt to either uh, gather specific types of food or uh, animals there, you know, hunt specific things. Uh, but yes, uh, we are, so we've, we've mastered sailing to an extent, at least to get to Cyprus. Now it's not a long sail from, you know, the, the areas we're talking about to Cyprus, but I imagine it wasn't a easy trip to make even if it's not that long. Uh, I, I imagine they'd have to be very sure that the weather was going to hold. Um, but that is, you know, that is kind of an isolated area that is going to be important for human development later uh, for its resources that it has on the island. But, yes, we have already begun traveling and... Uh, to and from Cyprus, but again, there is no evidence that anyone is living there at that time frame permanently. It is seasonal travel, or as-needed travel, perhaps. And, as we talked about a few moments ago, in southern Mesopotamia, uh, there is a possibility that there is a flood uh, happening, or has happened. So the very far south is actually probably mostly covered uh, with the remnants of marshes, which are still in the area even to this day. And they probably had a little bit um, more coverage of the area. Um, and there are also, um, I talked about the, the lions in the area, but there are also things like uh, cheetahs and other types of uh, large megafauna or predators there. I think wolves are also a possibility in that region at this time. But most of the, I guess, what you'd call the proto-agricultural settlements, they're mostly in the northern section. So the people living in the south, if they, you know, if they were able to stay there, uh, you know, if they were able to weather the, the storm, as it were, with the flood, uh, they would still be mostly nomadic hunters, gatherers. Uh, now there is also the possibility that the people living there are also moving west into the, I'm sorry, moving east into the mountains to escape the rising flood. And these are, of course, the Zagros Mountains. I mentioned them as kind of the boundary of what I'll be referring to as Mesopotamia. Uh, now the Zagros Mountains, of course, are in today, they cover uh, mostly Iran, but there is overlap in Iraq as well as Turkey. Um, and uh, they run quite deep into into Iran. Uh, so they, they basically start in so southeast Turkey. Uh, they cover a little bit of the northern tip of Iraq, and then they cover 
basically, if you were looking at the map, almost to the Caspian Sea, there is a little bit of a, I guess, a large valley. Uh, and then there's a little bit of a breakage before they run narrowly along to uh, just above Iran's southern coast near, um, uh, I believe it's Qatar. There is a lot of evidence for people living in this region uh, at this time and going very far back. Um, I think there have been Neanderthal remains dated between somewhere between 65 and 35,000 years ago. Um, there are, uh, they found a cemetery-like area uh, in the region as well that's about 600 years, six or 700 years before uh, when we're discussing. It had around 35 individuals and the name of this location is, I wrote it down, I believe was uh, Shanidar. Shinidar, I guess depending on the pronunciation, which I, I do apologize that I know that I'm butchering those. Um, and these these people were using tools, or they had tools that were very similar to, I guess, other pre-pottery Neolithic people in the area. Um, I don't know if they've ever been able to do DNA studies on these individuals, at least so far. Uh, so there's no way to tell if they were closely related or if, you know, they were just, you know, I guess nearby each other. Um, but the Zagros Mountains, uh, there are numerous valleys uh, that get, you know, really uh, well watered and they have a lot of uh, resources, I'm sure, you know, perfect for hunter-gatherers. Uh, it does make travel very difficult. So, you know, people are probably getting isolated from each other fairly easily. Uh, I imagine that, you know, a couple of valleys across from each other might be difficult to travel. It's probably not something that's done easily. And, of course, with lower um, uh, sea levels, that means there's less participation, uh, um, uh, not participation, Precipitation, excuse me. Uh, so there's probably less precipitation, at least up until this point in time, uh, which probably, you know, if you found a very fertile area or range, you'd probably want to stay there. But with more and more water coming down in the region and with the weather getting hotter and the ice caps for those mountains starting to melt, I imagine, you know, it's becoming a, a much better place to live, at least, you know, in the short term. Um, and of course, you know, once you get a hold of domestications of animals, this is a great place for raising uh, things like goats or other ungulates. And of course, uh, horses, when they're eventually introduced, uh, this will be a good region for them. Um, but again, that's far in the future. So, uh, and of course, to the north of this region, you have the Caucasus. Uh, uh, yes, the Caucasus Mountains. Um, these are, there is a valley between, like a very large valley. It's it's not really a valley. It's 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 a very large plain uh, bounded by the Caucasus to the north, the, I guess, the Anatolian Highlands to the uh, southwest, and then the, the, I guess, the tip of the Iranian Mountains to the north. Um, so... 
that's another area for earlier human habitation. And there have been people living there, of course, for the same amount of time. Uh, this region is going to be very important later, um, and this is, of course, where uh, the term Caucasian comes from for you know white skin. Now we're going to get into that evolutionary bit later, um, but this is kind of the region that people believed initially that we um, that white people had come from. But again, we're going to get into the nitty gritty on that in a future episode. But again. Hunter-gatherer based, very um, small habitation, at least at that part. There are probably people speaking a different kind of language um, in that region. I think most of the peoples that we've discussed, at least in this, the, the first part of this episode and this one, they are probably speaking some form of proto um Afro-Asiatic or some dialect spin-off of that, uh, which is probably going to morph into a couple different languages. There are most definitely some um, language isolates that don't survive to today, um, specifically the people that will speak Sumerian uh, in the south of Mesopotamia. They are probably, if they're not living there currently, they are living uh, in the southern Zagros Mountains, and they'll move into this area once the water recedes. Um, but the people living in the Caucasus, who I was t talking about, I forgot to mention the language part of the Sumerians, I apologize. But the, the people living in the Caucasus are speaking uh, Proto-Kartvalian. Um, today, of course... Um, there is no Kartvalian uh, specifically, but it has a couple of different branches, of which um, the Georgian language, I think, is the largest spoken. Uh, all in total, there are only about 5 million speakers of, of a Kartvalian language uh, still in existence. And some of the groups in the modern day, it's a very small number, um, you can get... I think numbers down as low as 30,000. Um, and, um, yeah, so, and as far as everyone can tell, at least most linguistics things that I've read about it, um, that this, this language is almost completely unique. Uh, it has no, um, no relation to any of the other, uh, language families even around it. And the fact that it's so diverse is just, to go, kind of goes to show that it is uh, it has been in that region for quite a long time and much like the Zagros mountains uh, it it has uh, it has a lot of its I, I guess um, development to thank just due to how isolated people in the area were even from each other e even people speaking a a related tongue to say uh, proto-georgian or proto svan I think is another is another term um, for one of the languages in that family. So that covers most of Anatolia, the Caucasus, uh, the Mediterranean coast, and Cyprus, and the very uh, eastern part of what is now Iran, the Zagros Mountains, which of course in the terminology I've been using is the western boundary of Mesopotamia. 
so I guess to continue into Asia and kind of continue along the paths that some humans made out of Africa, we're going to continue to the east and go further into the uh, Zagros and past them onto what is the, I guess what you would refer to as the Iranian Plateau. Now, uh, this is kind of the, this is kind of the, I, you shouldn't really call it a flatland, but it's kind of the border region between three plates that kind of all bump up against each other. Of course, you have the Arabian plate, which is running into the Eurasian plate. Uh, that is, of course, the cause of the Zagros. And then you have further to the east, the Indian plate, which, of course, where India and or the Indian plate and the Eurasian plate bump up against each other, that creates the Hindu Kush mountains. Now, uh, the Iranian plateau uh, does not cover what is all of Iran, of course. That's just kind of the name for it. It used to be called the Persian plate. Um, but essentially, most of modern-day Iran is in this region. Uh, so you have the Zagros to the east. Then to the north, you have the Elburz or Alborz Mountains, depending on the pronunciation. Uh, that kind of borders the Caspian Sea. There's a little bit of a land you know, like flatland between them, but uh, the Albors is the part to the north. Um, then you have the Kopet uh, Dog, or Kopet Dog, I'm not sure the exact pronunciation of that either. That is the, I guess, for the modern Iran, that is kind of its northern border, uh, and that kind of goes into Central Asia. Uh, places like Turkmenistan, uh, or excuse me, um, yeah, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, the eastern parts of Afghanistan, Kazakhstan, those areas. Uh, and in between these rugged mountainous ranges, you have a number of valleys, uh, some smaller flatlands, uh, and there is uh, a lot of rivers, you know, caused by runoff from melting snows in the area. Um, there are also a, quite a number of lakes in the area as well. Um, so very, uh, very biologically diverse. Uh, and of course there are, again, there are some deserts uh, kind of in between um, these ranges where uh, I guess where the, the run line for those waters do not go. Um, so if, of course, if they're in, uh, kind of a middle area where uh, the opposite direction of the, the water runs, they end up being very dry and desert or, you know, just kind of arid scrub lands. So, you know, Iran has a vast uh, amount of biological diversity. They have steppes, they have, you know, green grasslands, they have forests. Uh, I think specifically they have like a lot of oak trees, things like that. Uh, and the, the area is home to a lot of different types of food. Um, they have, um, at 10,000 BC at least, they had their own version of melons. 
I forget the exact name for it, but they they have like a local mill, and pomegranates are probably from that area. Uh, it's possible that they had they had wild apples as well. That's not a hundred percent. That could come from further north in Central Asia, and so they may not have shown up until later. But it's also possible that they had their own version of apples that just weren't quite as hardy or as popular. And then that was eventually replaced by, you know, people bringing the new versions in, the new the new seeds for the new trees. And uh, there are also figs, which I should have mentioned before then. Uh, figs actually have uh, a very wide range. They're in the Western Mediterranean as well. Um, and they're, figs are actually in the running for one of the first things that humans are maybe potentially cultivating. Um in the next 500 years or so it's possible that they you know that figs are like the big thing that they've first managed to like actively produce and make sure grow but iran has like a specific version to them i think they in addition they have several versions but they also have one that's i think in specifically it's very hardy it's meant to be kind of grown in the colder weather um they also have uh things like apricots in the region uh, as well as um, a few other uh, plants, and of course, because it's such a you know great region for growing fruit, other fruits will eventually be brought into the area to grow. Uh, citrons will be uh, will be brought in eventually once they come from Southeast Asia. Uh, Iran's one of the first areas uh, in the I guess the Middle East that will grow them. And eventually, of course, citrons are kind of the, I think, the forerunners of both uh, lemons and I think limes, too, as far as I'm aware. Um, but that's something that we kind of start uh, genetically modifying, uh, not quite directly, but, you know, just through good old natural selection. So it's a very, it's a very important region. Uh, they, they grow other things eventually as well. So it's, it's important to remember that while they may not have agriculture, at least initially, the same way that they do in uh, Mesopotamia, they are they are cultivating at least to some level uh, wild fruits, uh, and that's that's going to be an important industry in the area. In addition to all the herding and animal rearing that goes on in this region. And um, again, as we've mentioned, this is a very large area bound by a few different mountain ranges. So it's going to make it very important region for travel uh, from getting through to India from the Middle East, as well as the getting through to the Middle East from Central Asia or Central Asia uh, even further uh into Europe as well as the case may be. Uh, so Iran or the Iranian plateau as a point of transit, it's incredibly important. And it's also a very important part when it comes to the diffusion of um, not just humans, but uh, animals as well. Uh, the goat is first domesticated in Iran and Western Iran or the Western Iranian region 
it may have been across the border in Pakistan or Afghanistan. You know how that goes. It could even have been in India or right around you know, the borders of modern-day India. It doesn't really matter. But the point is, the Ibexes uh, that eventually evolve into mountain goats that are tamed, they are, that is done in this region, and it quickly spreads. Um, doesn't necessarily have to mean that, you know, all wild goats that became domesticated descended from these, but the idea of actually domesticating them definitely came from the region. And, you know, again, that is very important. It's going to go hand in hand. So the region where we're domesticating animals for the first time and the region that domesticates crops for this first time being so close together, I don't think necessarily is a coincidence. Um, we did mention briefly how their tools are very similar. Um, so I think there's a lot of back and forth in terms of uh, trade uh, or, you know, even just incidental contact or maybe deliberate conflict, of course. But I think, you know, you know transmitting ideas is done easier when you're not trying to kill each other. So uh, I think trade in different kinds of food sources uh, is definitely something that, you know, a lot of humans would be interested in at this time. And, of course, if trade ever failed, you know, you always have a good club or spear to, to make your point. Um, but, yeah, I think that's um, that's a good place to kind of end it. And um, next week we'll move into India proper, uh, get out of the Iranian plateau into the kind of the Hindu Kush mountains and go from there. Uh but I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, it's got almost 30 minutes, so I think once uh, yeah, the music's put in and all that stuff, it'll be, it'll be right at that line. So I think that's a good time to end it. It wasn't quite as long as the last episode, but I don't think it needed to be. Uh, covered a bit more regions, a bit more people. Um, uh, yes, uh, in terms of language, the Iranians were probably not speaking close to what they're speaking now. Of course, most Iranian languages today are Indo-European. Uh, the Indo-Europeans are still somewhere out in the wilds, if they've even formed at this point. Uh, they're, they're further north and to the east, but that's for future episodes, and we will get to them eventually. I'm sure that's going to be a very non-controversial topic to cover. But uh, that being said, uh, they were probably speaking, um, again, a language isolate maybe or maybe they were speaking kind of a proto-afro-asiatic uh, proto as well or possibly they were speaking an isolate similar to Sumerian or some other isolate that has been lost lost to time um, maybe maybe Elamite which actually I'm not sure if Elamite is Semitic language or not. But uh, that's something for me to research. <laughs> That'll be something I can come back to you guys with, of course, at a later date. But again, thank you all for listening, and please provide me with any feedback you may have, um, even if it's, you know, just to say you like the show. I, I always enjoy hearing from listeners. 
Uh, you can reach me at war at revpod at gmail.com or you can reach me on the Twitter, which I will try to include a link in the description of the episode. I think I forgot for last week's, but uh, yeah, thank you all and I hope you have a good rest of your day. Goodbye.